I'm Nicole Ferraro, and this is The Divide, a podcast from Light Reading exploring the ongoing digital divide, why and where it still exists, and what needs to be done to get people everywhere connected to reliable, high-speed internet. Today, I am joined by Ryan Johnston, Senior Policy Counsel for Federal Programs at Next Century Cities. Ryan recently authored a report for Next Century Cities called Resounding Silence, the Need for Local Insights in Federal Policymaking. The report takes a look at two dockets from the last five years to explore the FCC's general rulemaking process and its impact on local communities. We discuss both of those proceedings, where municipal feedback was missing and why it matters, and how the FCC and other agencies can address the need for local input in broadband policies going forward. Um, Ryan, thank you so much for joining me. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's, It's a pleasure to be here. So um, I'm really excited to talk to you today. You guys at Next Century City recently put out a report um, that basically discusses uh, the way municipalities interact with the FCC's uh, commenting process and uh, the way the FCC creates new rules. Um, And it was really interesting the way that you um, set up this report. You essentially dove into two proceedings and talked about the challenges that municipalities had with those proceedings and the outcomes. So I thought maybe we could kind of take a step back from the report and talk about each of those proceedings a little bit and then get into some of the specifics of your findings and some of the issues that um, municipalities are having when it comes to participating in these extremely important processes. So um, the... The first uh, proceeding you get into in the report is the small cell, um, which I believe was, what, 2018, 2017? Yeah, 2018. Okay, 2018. Yeah, okay. So um, for those who've had their memories erased since then, a lot has gone <laughs> on. Um, can you provide some brief background on the small cell proceeding and why it was particularly important? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, a lot has happened since the small cell proceeding. <laughs> but back when the 5G craze kind of first started, um, we saw a massive push by wireless providers to really speed up the process by which either local permits were re- uh, reviewed and granted. Um, and so they petitioned the FCC, the, the commission issued a rulemaking on um, a lot of the areas surrounding how municipalities review and granted their third permits. So things like shot clocks, um, the aesthetics for um, small cells, uh, pole attachments, rights of way rules, um, things like that. And so when the order came down, it came down actually really unfavorably for communities. They essentially retained very little control over anything that was asked about in the, the notice of proposed rulemaking. Um, and this is at a time when we really didn't even have a definition for what a small cell was yet. So we saw that a really large portion about how communities would be able to kind of not necessarily, well, determine how these networks were going to be built in their communities was actually just stripped away from them. Um, And so a coalition of cities challenged that order in court. um, And kind of when the legal dust settled, uh, the court actually upheld most of the FCC's order um, on everything except for the aesthetics piece. So communities essentially got control back about whether or not they could force providers to make a a pole look like a tree. Um, Not a super great, um, not really the best thing to get back, but it it was something. Okay. And the importance there is that the FCC essentially prioritized the deployment of a new untested technology that we weren't totally sure was going to kind of withstand the test of time over kind of 
this clear evidence that communities were going to have a lot of their local autonomy stripped away from them. Okay, gotcha. So the next proceeding that you talk about is one that would happen more recently, um, the multiple tenant environment MTE proceeding um, comment process on how the FCC should be regulating um, basically uh, how ISPs um, get into apartment buildings and, and other multiple tenant buildings. So um, tell me, let's let's talk, a, provide some better background on that than I just did and, and why that mattered so much. <laughs> so this one actually starts way back in 2008. So um, before I was even in high school. Um, <laughs> God. <laughs> uh, but the FCC essentially outlawed exclusive service agreements between landlords and internet service providers. So you couldn't agree to only have one provider providing service in your building. Um, however, they didn't restrict things like revenue sharing agreements, exclusive wiring agreements, or marketing agreements. So there were other ways that um, landlords could kind of restrict how internet service was provided to their buildings. We kind of fast forward to last year in 2021, the Wireline Bureau issued a notice or a public notice um, asking to kind of refresh the record on what kind of effects that these types of agreements were having. Were they impacting the price that people are paying for, uh, for broadband service? Are they limiting competition? Are there legitimate reasons for these types of agreements to be, um, to be put in place? Um, really, like, are there benefits for these things? And this was really important because it centered around how service could be potentially limited to dozens, if not hundreds of people, depending on the size of a building. Um, and really what kind of information are we putting out there for consumers to understand how, you know, how they can get connected? Because a lot of people might make a housing choice based on the fact that they are able to pick between one, two, three providers if they have access to those kinds of things. Um, and since we're standing on the cusp of billions of dollars being rolled out in federal funding, um, these agreements have really a big, could have a huge effect on how um, access and affordability is, is laid out to these multi-tenant buildings. So, okay, great. Thank you for the very useful background. Um, so let's talk a little bit about the issues that local governments, uh, municipalities had with actually responding to these proceedings and providing feedback and how that was reflected in the outcome. Yeah. So, I mean, when we were looking at the small cell proceeding, that was a very, um, it was actually kind of very clear that the FCC was like, we are going to prioritize um, the deployment of this new technology. We want to make sure we get it out there as fast as we can. Whereas even though consumers or the municipalities came and said, hey, this is going to be a significant problem for us. Like, in some communities, we have you know, one guy that does our permitting. And if you're gonna all of a sudden take the time that he has to do uh, review down from 90 days to 45 days or to 30 days or what have you, uh, that's going to be a significant challenge that we are not going to be able to make. Um, and it really set one, a, uh, uh, it set municipalities as a significant disadvantage against the industry players that have devoted really significant resources to showing up in FCC dockets um, and at the agency itself. And so like when we looked at the, when I looked at the comments, 
there was this distinct lack of kind of ex parte filings from municipalities. So while some have the resources to show up and, and file comments or reply comments, that's in a lot of times kind of where it ends. Um, they might not have the time, the manpower, the resources to set these meetings, um, to the meet with commission staff, whether at the bureau level or the commission or the commissioner level, and then file those ex partes. So when a community files comments, that has to be taken really seriously because that might be the only input that you get from them. Um, when we looked at the MTE proceeding, it was a little bit more of the same where we saw a little less municipal participation and I think that might have been just because it was less, it wasn't as flashy of a, of a proceeding. It was something that, while very important for the, the, the residents in a community, um, wasn't advertised in the same way that the small cell proceeding was. Um, you had the large cities that understood, you know, where to look and what to do um, to file comments participating. But the smaller communities that might show up for a large proceeding because they've heard about it through the grapevine or something like that um, might not necessarily know how to find these not necessarily smaller proceedings but these ones that aren't advertised in quite the same way um, and so that was kind of one of the the big issues that we found is that we're operating with a, a lesser we're, municipalities are operating with less resources so they really have to pick and choose where to show up Right. So you're, we're talking kind of a, about two separate issues, right? There's a degree of difficulty for municipalities to actually participate in these proceedings. Like you said, there might be one guy um, or nobody, you know, there's, it's just, or they might not know the, the exact steps to take. And then there's the degree to which their input is actually valued versus the input coming from the industry players. So um, what are Next Century City's recommendations for resolving each of those? Sure. Um, and so, like, to, to your first point, I think it really, like, we mentioned the, the kind of the size of the city. Um, we generally see cities like Seattle, Boston, Los Angeles, you know, show up filing those things. But when we're looking at, um, you know, the, the smaller communities, what we're really asking for is if the FCC can make it available, um, how this process works, how to file these comments, what those comments need to look like. You know, there's, you know, FCC has its own citation guide that if you're outside of the FCC, you probably don't know that it exists, but that's the thing that they rely on um, for all of it. Like that's what we use to file comments. That's what, you know, everybody who's in the industry uses to file comments. And if that piece of the puzzle is missing from a community filing, the FCC is not gonna do the work to then cite them having to redo all of their, their work essentially um, and so really you know when we see the outcomes of these proceedings even if they if even if they come out kind of favorably we still see some kinds of not necessarily overlook of their arguments but really just a a, a movement away from saying okay well this is how we've always done it this is how we're going to continue to do it um, and that was really that was really, um, what's the word I want here, um, apparent in the MTE proceeding where the city of Boston raised several questions on the FCC's authority to actually promulgate rules now that kind of the, the regulatory landscape has changed after the, the Restoring Internet Freedom Order. 
And the FCC said pretty much that is we have we did this in the past in 2008. We're just going to do it again here, regardless of how things have changed. Um, but one of the other points that I want to make is that when we're looking at the advisory committees that are at the FCC, um, currently there are four municipal officials sitting on 11 advisory committees. Right. That is one of the biggest issues that we see because a lot of recommendations, model municipal codes, things like that come out of these advisory committees. But how can we trust that there's going to be a lot of meaningful kind of on the ground knowledge that's being put into these things when we don't actually have the people that are going to be impacted by this stuff sitting on these advisory committees. And that's one of the other ways that, you know, we've really tried to make it clear to the FCC. It's like, hey, you need to advertise the application process to sit on these committees because I'm sure that you will find municipal officials that want to be involved in this process, that want to have a say, that want to be invited to the table. But if you're simply just going to put an application process in the federal register and on your rep your website, you're only going to get applications from those people that know to look there. And a lot of communities don't, like they have to worry about running fire departments and emergency services and trash and waste disposal and things like that. They don't understand, they don't know, or it's not that they don't know, but they don't have the like the capacity with which to go like make sure they're scouring the federal register every morning. Yeah, of course. It's that's it's part of basically my job, and uh, I forget to yeah, read the FCC exactly. comments. So, so um, the these proceedings were under two different FCC chairs and presidential administrations. Just curious if that mattered at all. Did anything improve from from one to the next? Um, it's so it not really. It, it didn't. <laughs> Um, we, things did change a little bit because we went from a position in the small cell proceeding from kind of not necessarily an outright disregard for what the communities were saying, but really a prioritization of, um, deployment and of the industry position to a more subtle kind of failure to address the concerns of that the communities were raising. So this seems to be a problem, you know, an institutional problem, regardless of, of where we sit in an administration. Okay, gotcha. Well, that is disappointing, but not surprising. Um, I, I guess it's also notable that, you know, I read these filings all the time, and Next Century Cities is frequently, uh, if not almost always, in there representing the points of view from municipal governments. So I guess you're <laughs> you're doing your part to get them in there. Um, so uh, this report focuses on the FCC, obviously, um, but like you mentioned earlier, there's billions of dollars coming down from the NTIA. There's also the, the US. SDA. So do other agencies have some similar issues with municipal feedback? Like how are these challenges being reflected in, in proceedings in these other federal agencies and also at the state level where a lot of these um, broadband uh, plans are going to be written? You know, I've, I've heard some concerns from local communities that they may not even be represented in their state proceedings. So how are you seeing this beyond the FCC? So yeah, beyond the FCC, one of the things that we've actually seen um, is a big help. So the, the Department of Agriculture is a, is a great example. They have field offices all across the country. And when we're talking to the, the Rural Utility Service here in DC, they are 
always saying like, hey, we have people out in you know Iowa or Colorado or wherever trying to meet with as many people as they can or act as kind of ambassadors for what the USDA is doing, really trying to gather as much information as they can to make you know the next iteration of whatever process they're going through easier than the last. And while we do see you know some genuine concerns about how those programs are run, we don't, or at least I have never heard the same level of concern about input that we hear at the FCC. Um, and the same thing with the NTIA. The NTIA has been very vocal about saying, hey, we have put, we're trying to put like a federal program officer in every state so that every state has a person that you can go to, that you can talk to, to make sure that you have all of the information that you need to be able to meaningfully participate in the bead program or whatever. And the same thing with Treasury and the Capital Projects Fund. The, the team over there has been very vocal about trying to make themselves available um, with the limited staff that they've got to everybody that they can. And you just don't really hear that same kind of, you know, you don't really hear that from the FCC as much. Um, at the state level, it really comes down to who is kind of the broadband champion at the state level. If they have a, a broadband office that is working very hard to kind of make themselves available to communities, it's much easier. But if you're in one of those states that is still trying to kind of get the ball rolling, um, communities might not have an idea of who they need to be talking to at the state level to get, the, to get kind of their information out there. So we're really trying to kind of push states to, to get these things spooled up as quickly as they can, because the faster that communities know that they have that point person that they can reach out to, the more robust information that these states are going to have to work with when it comes down to you know applying for the BEAD program or applying for the Digital Equity Act funding, um, things like that. So we're really hoping that we see this really nice kind of smooth process moving forward, but that really is all dependent on, on how quickly the states can get their, their ducks in a row. Right, which is dependent on a, a, a mapping process that hasn't gotten any attention at all. Um, so my last, <laughs> just feel a little sarcasm there. Uh, my last question for you <laughs> is um, kind of related, basically. Uh, what, are, what are you advising municipalities to be doing right now as they prepare to get on their state's radars for these uh, broadband plans? So for, right now, uh, sorry, just for the audience's sake, for, for the BEAD program. Right. Yep. Yeah. So right now we are trying to kind of prepare them to do the data collection that they need to do um, to make sure that the state can meaningfully incorporate that in whatever format they're going to do when either the state challenge process for the BEAD program comes up or they start filing those kinds of initial planning um, documents for the BEAD program. Really, because what one of the big things that we're kind of having an issue with it at the FCC is that, you know, speed test data isn't acceptable for a challenge under the FCC's maps. But the NTIA has been fairly clear in saying that for our processes, if the state wants to submit a challenge process that has, you know, speed test data, we'll take that, you know, within reason, as long as you're not like throwing the FCC maps out or something like that. Um, and so it's, you know, if a community is saying, hey, what data do we need to be collecting? It's like, hey, if you can organize, you know, 
a, a speed test day or something like that where your community is, is for those who are connected or being able to run if you have a list of locations that you know that are in your community that aren't served those are things that we need to do um the like really just making sure that the you know nine or ten criteria that the fcc have put out that does constitute a challenge to their maps um, like, hey, here are here is what the data like you should be collecting for, you know, the official FCC things. But then if you know that your state is already doing mapping or is already doing, you know, speed test collection in preparation for what they're going to do for the NTIA challenge process, like that's also very useful for, for you to be collecting because that will also be helpful down the road. So it is everybody should kind of just be in like data collection mode at the moment because that's where we really need that kind of hard evidence at the moment to figure out okay, like where things are, where they're not. Um, so that way, when we do get to the point where allocations are being made and money's coming down, we can get those people connected. Um, and we can get them connected to affordable, high-speed affordable service, really, it's, it's that simple, I think. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Brian. I could talk to you all day about this, but I wouldn't do that to you. You're such a nice guy. Um, I will let you go instead. <laughs> uh, thank you for your time and for your hard work on this report and, and good luck uh, changing FCC. We're trying very hard. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you again, Ryan, for joining me. Thank you as well to our producer, Pierre Landreau, for making this episode. Be sure to subscribe to the Light Reading Podcast for more episodes of The Divide, as well as interviews and insights from the Light Reading team. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time.